This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. We are. We are. We are Cultivate. 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 We are Cultivate. Hello and welcome to Yield Crime, where we discuss the funny, strange, and obscure crimes of yesteryear. I'm your host, Lindsay Valenti, and with me today is a very special guest, Sean Peters. Sean Peters teaches in the Integrated Liberal Studies program at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He has written five books, most recently The Catonsville Nine, A Story of Faith, and Resistance in the Vietnam Era. Sean, welcome to the podcast. Hi, it's great to be here, and I'm excited to talk about all things relating to, not all things relating to true crime, just the, <laughs> just the thing I know about. How about that? I'll focus on the thing that I know about. There you go. So that's a good segue. The reason you're here today is to tell us about your book, The Infamous Harry Hayward, A True Account of Murder and Mesmerism in Gilded Age Minneapolis. And the story of the quote-unquote Minneapolis monster details the trial of Harry Hayward, a serial seducer and schemer who was deemed a Svengali, a lunatic, and a man without a soul. You think that about sums it up? Yeah, there were uh, any number of superlatives that were applied yeah. to Harry, and those were, <laughs> those were a few. Yep. Before we dive too much into the interview, I'm just curious, given the topics that you've written about in the past, what got you interested in history? That's a good question. Wow. So interested in history generally or history this particular? I, got, I could talk about both if you want. We could go back to my childhood. We could talk about <laughs> it all started. Take us way back. <laughs> in Baltimore in the 1960s. So I was trained as a journalist. I did a lot of writing and stuff and then eventually gravitated towards history. And I did several books on law and religion. I did four books on law and religion. And I really like law and religion. It's fascinating. And But I was a, I was a little burned out by right. I was like, okay, I've written four books about this stuff. I'm not <laughs> sure I could really say much more. And I thought about, you know, what is, what am I, what do I like? Like just in a visceral gut level way, if I walk into a bookstore, I walk into a library, you know, where do I go? And it got me thinking, and I did this weird, I, I'm usually not a person who does kind of brainstorming in this manner, but I, I created a word cloud of, I have like, I have a Goodreads, Lindsay, you're yep. familiar with Goodreads, right? Yep. Oh yeah. I have, I have quite the list. Yes. <laughs> right. I have like several thousand books in Goodreads. So I went through <laughs> and I picked out, this is super nerdy, but this is how I got to writing this book. I picked out three <laughs> keywords from every single book in my Goodreads account. I created a word cloud from that, you know, where the, the common words are really humongous yep. and the least frequent words are really tiny. And certain things stood out in that word cloud. One of us like murder true crime, 19th century. 
and some other stuff, fraud. And I thought, oh, yeah, actually, this is true. These are the things that I really kind of vibe on. And so I, I started to think about, OK, if I want to write a book, maybe I do want to go and write a, a book about a 19th century murder. Mm hmm. And I want it to be relatively close geographically to where I live. Like, I don't want to write a book about, you know, that's set in Portugal or, you yep. know, Azerbaijan or something like that. I really want to, you know, I want to be able to go there. And I kind of just, I've had like this sort of Venn diagram. And eventually, like, Harry Hayward was in the middle of that Venn diagram in terms of it was the right era, it was right geographically. And really, no one had written, the big thing for me is writing being kind of the only game in town with my books. I really yep. want to be the only person who's written a book about it. I don't want to write the 12th book about something. God bless people who can do that, mm -hmm. but I just cannot get up for it. I really want to monopolize and have it on my own. And, and I, I kind of came across the story and I was sad at first because like, oh my God, this is such a weird story. Mm -hmm. Sure, there's a book out there and they're just, for whatever reason, no one had really gotten into it. I found source materials and one thing led to another and and that's how I, that's the circuitous story of how I got into writing the book. And I, it, and it was a story that it just, it captivated me. It was a little bit different. Obviously there are tons of, <laughs> I don't know if you've heard, there's a lot of true crime out there. And what? <laughs> I know. That's my hot take is true crime is a big deal. Yeah. There's uh, books and, and miniseries and, and everything else. And I, I kind of wanted to find something that's a little bit different. And, and the story is a little bit different and it, it captivated me. I like the strange and inexplicable maybe. And Harry and this murder certainly fell into that category. And I kind of a Darwinian reader. Okay. I, I don't know. Are you okay? Let me ask you a question. Do you, sure. if you start a book, do you always finish books that you start or do you just abandon books if you're not feeling it? If I'm not feeling it, I'll abandon shit. Yeah. Like I'll try to give it, I try to give five or six chapters. Huh? If you, if you can't get me within the first three, I tend to kind of be like, uh, but I'll give you a couple more. And if I can't get through like three or four, I'm, I'm out. No, I don't even go that. You're, you're even sturdier than I am. I'm, I'm like, a glutton for punishment. It, it's like a bad, <laughs> it's like a bad date, bad first date. And I'm like, <gasps> I say I'm going to the bathroom and then I sneak out the back door. I will yep. drop something quickly. And so I don't, I want my books to be books that I would read myself and I want them to sure. be captivating and interesting and kind of new. And that's what I try to do with this book. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Awesome. So you kind of touched on it as you were describing it. But when you start diving into a subject to research it, you know, what other resources do you use and kind of what's your process? Because you said this one was kind of a different process because you use uh -huh. like a word cloud and things like that. But uh -huh. in the past, what would kind of have been your standard process, I guess? It, it happens. There are kind of a variety of ways that I've come to I've come to books. And my first few books I had my first book was about law and the Jehovah's Witnesses and these famous civil liberties cases in the 1940s. And that kind of organically led to some other books that were kind of about religious liberty and the free exercise of religion and religious minorities. I'm not religious myself, slightest bit. <laughs> but I got into that and I thought, wow, this is really a little bit of a detour here, but you know, we're friends. So let's, let's have a detour. <laughs> you know, the, these religious liberty cases, they don't usually involve like warm, fuzzy religions that everybody 
like yeah. it's like the Hare Krishnas and the Mormons and faith healers and stuff. And I kind of like that marginal fringe mm-hmm. stuff. And for me, it just I kind of test drive a lot of ideas for books and I'll have a Google Doc or something and I'll I'll be like, you know, what about this? What about this? What about this? And I often there is just a reason why it's not going to work. You know, mm-hmm. there are 12 books about it or there are no source materials or it's not as cool as I thought or no mm-hmm. one will publish it. So there is a little there's some push and there's some pull when I'm coming to it. But sometimes you just kind of know. And I one of the I think benefits of being a little bit older now, having been around the block a little bit. And I kind of know what's going to work now and what's not going to work. And that's good. I can sort of tell whether something is going to be just viable as a book, Mm -hmm. whether or not somebody actually wants to publish it or like buy it Mm -hmm. or people will love me or not love me. Like I don't, you can't control those things, but just, yep. I'm at the point now where I kind of know, yeah, that's a book or like, eh, that's, maybe that's an article or a blog post or something like that. Yep. And it's, I will say for folks who are interested in writing, if you're thinking, you know, how do you, how do you do this? You do it by doing it. And it's not, it's really hard to just take, take a class or do a seminar or go to a write, like writer's colony or something and, it, it's hard that way just because it takes time. But then once you figure it out once or twice, it's it's easier. Kind of like learning to ride a bike, but with riding. Yes. And you hopefully don't run into a telephone pole or <laughs> get hit by a bus or something like that. You know, and it and those things those things happen and you kinda have to dust yourself off and just try. And I I the number of books that I've published versus the number of books that I kind of started and then had to give up on, there are a lot in the latter category. I think all writers probably are that way. And that's just, it's trial and error. I will say for this one, like once I knew no one had really written a book about it and I found a copy of the trial transcript, that was like a huge thing and I know this from being a legal historian, like that's like bread and butter for any mm-hmm. legal historian is things like trial transcripts and legal briefs and court decisions. I found the trial transcript and I found this sort of confession-y thing that Harry dictated right towards the end of his journey here on Earth. And I had those two <laughs> things and I thought, okay, those are that's a lot of stuff and I can turn that stuff hopefully into a more or less linear coherent narrative so that's a good another good segue into the book itself the story takes place in like 1894 1895 minneapolis can you give us an idea from your research of kind of what minneapolis was like at that time wow minneapolis was it wasn't it had sort of matured from a frontier town it was no longer a frontier outpost but it was still pretty wild like there were it had a I don't know, there was sort of a respectable core that was emerging and there were, you know, wealthy elites and so forth. The the victim in this case is a young woman named Kitty Ging, Catherine Ging, who was a dressmaker. Mm-hmm. And so she made dresses for the wealthy women of Minneapolis and St. Paul. So it was the kind of place where a dressmaker could make a living on the one hand. On the other hand, there was tons 
of crime and corruption and Mm -hmm. gambling and just really seedy kind of, I wouldn't say like Wild West frontier stuff, but there were, there were bad doings Mm -hmm. happening in, in Minneapolis and St. Paul at that time. And that was, there was uh, a major political convention that happened around the same time. And that was like seen as the, that was going to give Minneapolis kind of the imprimatur of a, of a real kind of grown up city, but it was just happening. So it was kind of, it just become a, a more, I guess, quote unquote, respectable place. Sure. And you mentioned the victim. So Catherine Kitty Ging, she was discovered on December 3rd, 1894, near Lake Calhoun, which has since been renamed to Bidet Makaska. And you kind of talked about Kitty a little bit. You said she was a dressmaker. Is there anything else our listeners should kind of know about Kitty? Well, you know, the fact that she was uh, kind of an independent entrepreneur as a woman at that time is kind of it was cool. That was a time mm-hmm. where women, when they were working outside the home, there weren't exactly a ton of opportunities for them. There were sort of very gendered workplace mm-hmm. where they could be teachers and nurses and stuff. And she decided, she went out on her own and she had this shop in this building called the Syndicate Block. And she was a small business owner. I, mm-hmm. I guess that they probably called them small. I don't know if that 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 term of art really existed in the 1880s, but that's exactly what she was. Mm-hmm. And she, by all accounts, was this formidable woman. She hadn't grown up there. She had grown up in uh, New York State. And it's always interesting for me to think about you know, how she got mixed up with Harry is uh, one of mm-hmm. the great mysteries because she, in retrospect, you, I, you know, you kind of, I don't know, sometimes I have these conversations and I'll be like, you know, Kitty, why did you do this? How did you let mm-hmm. yourself get mixed up with this person? Because by all accounts, she was uh, kind of a force to be reckoned with mm-hmm. as a person and, and really had accomplished much more than Harry himself had. Harry was, I don't know, kind of a lazy, wealthy playboy who yeah. you know lived off his parents' wealth. And Kitty didn't do that. Kitty kind of had made it on her own. And that's one of the many elements to the tragedy, I think. Mm -hmm. So Kitty lived in the Ozark Flats, where Klaus Blixt was the caretaker. Can you give us a little bit of a backstory, I guess, on who Klaus was? Right. So the the Ozark Flats, which is still there in the cities, it's kind of like I did a kind of a walking tour with uh, Minneapolis St. Paul magazine. We kind of revisited a lot of these places. The Ozark Flats, not exactly the same as it was in 1894, but fairly similar. So Harry's father owned the entire building. Harry Mm -hmm. lived there. Kitty Ging lived there. And this guy, Klaus Blix, lived there. Klaus Blix was, they called him the engineer. He was kind of like the all-around maintenance guy. Like he was Mm -hmm. this like super the guy he went to to get things done in the building and he lived in the basement with his wife uh he was an immigrant from sweden they you know until the events <laughs> that were central mm-hmm. to this book they didn't hang out they weren't friends but yep klaus blix got kind of tangled up in this web with harry hayward and that's one of the things about this book is that it's Harry is not the murderer. Mm-hmm. Harry is not 
the murderer and he i don't know if can, we, can i just spoil it all and say you can spoil of, your own book that's fine i can spoil it. it yeah yeah so <laughs> harry essentially manipulates klaus blix into committing this murder and that so it's kind of interesting harry is this he's a described as a serial killer because he was involved in other murders as well by his own hand mm-hmm. this is one that did not happen by his own hand he manipulated klaus blixt this janitor guy into doing it for him which is another tragedy klaus blixt was a fairly i don't want to say he's innocent because he he was legally guilty of of committing yeah. the murder but was another person who just got caught up in this sociopathic tornado that was harry hayward yep you just keep giving me all these like segue things like you it's like you know I'm, what i'm I gonna have ask an intuitive you. sense of the segue I think. yeah you just kind of know where i'm going with this so right. of course we need to talk about harry hayward himself and you kind of mentioned but how how harry kind of met the two kitty and klaus and they kind of all kind of sort of connected with one another but you already kind of talked about that because obviously Harry and Kitty lived there together. Klaus was like the uh-huh. maintenance guy. But was there really any other sort of involvement that kind of got the three of them kind of involved with one another? Sure. Yeah. So so Harry is this is this like incredibly good looking. Everybody who talks about Harry, male or female, like inevitably will be like, man, this guy was really good looking. He's dynamic, incredibly manipulative, and some believed had mesmeric powers over people which is one of the things i kind of go into a little bit in the book is the idea of mesmerism this kind of mm-hmm. mind control thing that was really i won't say it's the belief in it was certainly was in vogue mm-hmm. at around the time there had been this novel called trilby that introduced the character of svengali mm-hmm. so this manipulative figure and harry was believed to be a kind of svengali now i I personally don't believe in mesmerism. I don't believe in mind control, but mm-hmm. I do believe in manip- in dynamic people who can manipulate others. Yep. And I believe in that people can be sociopaths. And I think that Harry was was that kind of person. And he lived off his family's wealth. He gambled. He was a prodigious gambler and womanizer, among other things. And he took a romantic interest in Kitty Gang that was not only wasn't strictly romantic but he clearly also wanted to figure out a way to get at the money that she had because she mm-hmm. operated this dressmaking business and, and had some money and harry being harry believed that he could i don't want to make it too simple but basically thought i he could take out some life insurance policies on kitty then have her murdered and then collect on the life insurance and that would help bankroll all of the stuff that he wanted to do and he harry it's funny he does a lot of very very stupid things committing this murder he goes around and talks to insurance agents and and talks to uh, talks to a doctor about like hey if you want to shoot somebody in the head like where is the best place to you know (laughs) so he he does these things and then figures out a way it Klaus Blixt is easily he's kind of like the perfect foil for Harry he's easily manipulated remember that Klaus is kind of the janitor in this building 
Harry is the owner of the building's son, so it's like his boss's son. Mm-hmm. He's this kind of cool, good-looking guy with lots of money, and you can kind of see Blixt, like how Blixt would have gotten caught up with Harry, and and Harry sort of involves Blixt in some minor crimes, mm-hmm. and then says, "Well, you know, I could I could turn you in for these minor crimes if you don't help me. Mm-hmm. If you don't help me." with this murder of Kitty King. And and so essentially that's what happens is that Harry manipulates Blixt into taking Kitty King out on a carriage ride around Lake Calhoun and Harry being, this is, he did some good planning as well. He made a point of being seen out that night at a performance in at the opera house in Minneapolis and was very sort of ostentatious and making sure everybody knew that he wasn't, because he knew that that was the night of the murder. Mm-hmm. He wanted to have an alibi. So he establishes this alibi. And then the deed is done. Blixt you know, kills Kitty and her body is found. And it quickly becomes apparent that, you know, Harry sort of like immediately shows up. <laughs> During the investigation, he goes down to the morgue and is like, yeah, you know, that's... Yeah, she's. Uh, I know who she is, and I think that she got murdered because somebody wanted my money. And I'm kind of, I'm kind of the victim here because someone, <laughs> the, this, this crime was committed as a way of sort of getting at me and my money. And that immediately everyone just sort of suspects, and mm-hmm. that Harry is involved, but he's got this alibi for having been seen out on the night of the murder, and then the the investigation proceeds a pace and and blixt is questioned and and kind of folds rather quickly and that leads to there's a kind of a spectacular trial and it's one of the things that i i thought about in doing this book i was like okay is this just like a local yokel story that people cared about and just in minneapolis or was it just a, was it a national story and it really was mm-hmm. a national story as the investigation proceeded as the trial happened, there were just all these revelations about Harry and just how mm-hmm. horrible Harry was. And it became this kind of, I, I wouldn't say trial of the century, but a, a, a big trial that gathered national attention. Mm-hmm. So as you mentioned, the Haywards were a prominent family. I mean, obviously they owned not just the Ozark Flats, but they also, weren't they like... They owned a lot of other property in Minneapolis. Mm-hmm. Or, mm-hmm. And of course, Harry was their golden boy, because why not? But then you introduce his brother. Is it pronounced Adri? Uh, Adri, yeah. Adri. Adrian, yes. Yeah, and he was viewed as the black sheep. So how <sighs> does how does Adri feel, factor into the case as well? Poor, poor Adri. That was an <laughs> interesting uh, dynamic as well. Oh, man. Yeah. Think about, yeah. So Harry is this profligate, just lazy playboy. And Adri is like the dutiful son, is very straight-laced. He works for his father. And who did the parents love? They love Harry. Mm-hmm. Harry is the apple of their eye, and they just sort of don't really like poor Adri. And Harry realizes this and plays upon this. And if at various times really tries to, before the murder, tries to involve Adri 
he mm-hmm. goes to his brother before the murder is committed. He actually tries his brother before he convinces Klaus Blix. And his brother, Hadrian, is like, oh my God, no, I'm not going to kill anybody. <laughs> yeah, that's crazy. And Harry repeatedly tries to pin the murder. After it happens, he tries to pin the murder on his brother. He, uh, at a couple of points, makes plans to murder his brother and then stage it as a suicide so that people will believe that Adri killed himself over guilt mm-hmm. and having killed Kitty and just over and over again, just does these horrible things to his poor brother at the very, mm-hmm. very end. Harry, I think does finally say some halfway nice things about his brother and sort of says, yeah, and my brother, it turns out my brother didn't do anything wrong. My brother is a, good, he's a stand-up guy and, I've been lying about him forever and that, but that's the kind of person Harry was. I mean, Mm -hmm. that you would not only like murder, (laughs) manipulate one of your father's employees into murdering your girlfriend for insurance money, but then that you would try to pin it on your brother. That's what you're dealing with when you're talking about Harry, that that in a nutshell Mm -hmm. is the kind of, the kind of person he was. And I, I looked, I started thinking about, sociopathy and, and just you know what makes a sociopath and there's this like list of there's like a test that you can mm-hmm. apply and it's like there are like six or eight things i forget actually more than that and just harry just checks off like shows no remorse mm-hmm. is in sort of a serial philandering all mm-hmm. these things and it's just that's chapter and verse who who harry was mm-hmm. unfortunately in it there were many efforts later to try to figure out, you know, was it his brain? Was his brain defective? So there's like literally looking at his brain yeah. to see, because at the time there's this phrenology, this idea of having yep. like, you could read someone's skull and tell, you know, were they destined to be a genius or a criminal? And there's no answer. Like if you asked me, like, how did he get to be that way? I would not be able to tell you. Mm-hmm. He had a wonderful from what I could tell, a great family life, loving parents, doting parents, had everything in the world, but just something inside him just turned him into this monster. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this kind of, my next question kind of harkens back to kind of what you touched on before about the case kind of quickly gaining attention. And it essentially sort of like took over the news in Minneapolis for sure. And it, at one point became so big, they actually had to move the trial to a larger venue and I think I already know the answer, but could you give us an idea of why you think this crime had such a huge draw? Well, it just had a lot of, right, people, unfortunately, like people get murdered all the time. Mm-hmm. So, and not every murder is a big deal. So, yeah, you'd look at it and you'd say, what are the elements? And and I think part of it is you, it's first of all, white people mm-hmm. <laughs> that at the time that mm-hmm. was unfortunately Blacks in Minneapolis were there were weren't that many of them, and they were viewed as second class citizens. And so, having affluent white people killing each other that checks off a box, right? Mm-hmm. I think that sex was involved. That's you know a big seller. And I think too, this was at an era when the press was changing, and the press's coverage of uh, newspapers were becoming. They were cheaper and more widely available. So there's mm-hmm. competition. And I was surprised when I started writing this book. I'm like, man, how many newspapers were there in Minneapolis and St. Paul? I know. A lot of 
papers. <laughs> and they, this is the era of, you know, where the penny press and yellow journalism sort of, sort of starts. So there's very, very, very sensational headlines and stuff. I was, I was looking at the, the, I, I have to confess, I went back and I looked at my own book today because I was like, okay, I want to make sure I kind of remember all of the good stuff. Mm-hmm. There was a headline. I had forgotten about this headline. It was a multi-tiered headline, but the, the first tier was just, oh my God, exclamation point. <laughs> like, wow, that's a headline. Like, yeah. just get that out. Oh, I was like, OMG, stuff, you know, <laughs> sensational murder. So it it is interesting though, because it's not, it wasn't exactly a whodunit. Mm-hmm. There wasn't a mystery. The mystery was how could another human being kind of be like this? Mm-hmm. Right. That was the mystery. The mystery wasn't like, did he do it or did he not do it? The mystery was how could he be like this? And maybe he could get away with it. Mm-hmm. Right. If he's been manipulating people so well, maybe he could manipulate the jury. Maybe mm-hmm. some people thought that he would like exercise his powers of mind control over the jury. Like that was thought of as being a possibility, but it just had, it was just an unusual set of circumstances involving, and Harry is very like quotable guy. He's very telegenic. The, the newspapers did not reproduce photographs. They were still in line drawings, but it made for good copy mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. There were other elements of it too. You know, he was supposedly involved in counterfeiting and ga- and he was involved in gambling. Mm-hmm. And so you name the kind of, it was scandalous on multiple levels. And I think that that's why. And the victim was this upstanding woman of great promise mm-hmm. as well. So it fit into some, I don't know, tropes maybe in terms of gender and, and relationships. But it it doesn't surprise me that it was so closely and widely followed. Mm-hmm. Kind of like the evils of excess. And kind of, oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. See what will happen. I, I think that there was an element of that mm-hmm. in the coverage where I don't think people criticized Kitty directly, but I think indirectly there was this undercurrent of yeah, this is the life. If this is the kind of life that you lead, if you're a single woman who dares to like try to support herself, mm-hmm. and you're running around with a guy who drinks and gambles commits insurance fraud by burning yeah. down building, then maybe this. So it, it was maybe built a little bit as a cautionary tale, mm-hmm. I think, for for young women. And that was an element of it as well. Mm-hmm. So that kind of, I think we touched on it, but do you think Harry's motive for getting rid of Kitty was just for the insurance money? Or do you think there was another element to it? What do you mean? What are you getting at? What do you think? <laughs> Are you suggesting I, 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 so there were rumors that she was pregnant and I don't, I don't know if I believe that or not. Yeah. It doesn't seem like she was. I think it's part of me thinks that he just wanted to see if he could do it. He Mm -hmm. just wanted to, he just had this like, man, I am so incredible and persuasive and manipulative. I wonder if I could set into motion this scheme. And get away with that. I think part of it was the money. He, he did want the money. There's there's no doubt about it. Mm-hmm. But I think part of it was just power. And 
it's just sort of megalomania. I think that he thought he could do it and he thought he could get away with it. And that, that was a big piece of it was just him kind of mastering, you know, tricking everybody one more time. Mm -hmm. And so it wasn't just Harry that was convicted. Klaus was as well. Cause obviously, cause he's the one that pulled the trigger. Do you think the sentence that Klaus was given was fair given his role in the murder? So to clarify, he was given life in prison. Right. And, and I think so. I, I, I mean, I, <laughs> I mean, if you consider I, the alternative. I, right. Yeah. And the alternative was the, the death penalty, the gallows. And, and I, so it, it, in, in a way he was shown mercy in the, mm-hmm. the prosecutor in Harry's case actually spoke on his beh- on Blix's behalf and said, look, he's kind of a, was easily led astray and he is not the, the true villain here. So, I think given, you know, a young woman died, he put a gun to her head, pulled the trigger. And yeah, I think it's, it's unfortunate, but probably, I don't know if fair is even the right word, but I can sort of understand how yeah. it, and, and, and the alternative, I don't know, like a shorter sentence or letting him off by saying, you know what, you weren't really to blame. Like I, I, I do think like just sort of knowing right from wrong, mm-hmm. one would, one would know that that isn't, you know, something that you should do. Well, and give and how much remorse that he showed during the trial too. Like he was very candid about the fact that he like didn't want to do it. Like that he was basically told if he didn't do it, Harry was going to kill his wife. You know, right? Like, of course, yeah. Blix was he he showed, and again, that's a part of the tragedy. Is he really he got it? He didn't sort of say, hey, you know, I didn't. I was just. I was trying to save my wife and I was, you know, I had no choice. Don't blame me. Like he, mm-hmm. he blamed himself for it and was, and I think was pretty genuine about it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think that was, that was one of the points in the book, which was very good, by the way. I didn't say that yet. Oh, thank you. And that's genuine. I'm not just saying that because I'm interviewing you on the show. <laughs> you're going to have me on your podcast and be like, you know, I think your book really sucked. I, I thought your book you, was awful. Tell us all about like, it. Uh, <laughs> it's kind of meh for me. I have some notes. <laughs> just yeah, sure. <laughs> but you really do feel bad for him. Like, like you, you feel so bad for him. And I, I will say I was pleasantly surprised that they did not give him the death penalty. Because as you know, because that was the thing. It was either if you were if you were guilty, chances are you were going to get hanged given the time period you were put to death. And it was more like lesser crimes that you would go to jail for, you know, like theft and things like that. So I was glad that they gave him leniency in that regard. Right. And it's interesting too, in the book, like Harry is so bad, but most everybody else kind of, and I'm a cynic and I like, I love kind of, I don't know, challenging sort of narratives about people, but mm-hmm. pretty much all the other people in the book, like do the right thing and are mean. Well, I think his Harry's parents are, it's that sad to me too, that they're just so deluded about Harry that they think until the end, you know, that he's, he's innocent. And that's, and I really struggle, you know, so I like, you know, kind of counterintuitive, stories a little bit and i was like oh man harry what what am i gonna find about harry 
to make him kind of a well-rounded, you know, you, you rattled off a bunch of these adjectives, right? That were used. Yep. He's the devil, he's a fiend incarnate, blah, blah, blah. And I was, yep. I was like, I'm going to find some good stuff about Harry. You know, we're going to get this well-rounded portrait of a, of a human being. And mm-hmm. like, boy, there just isn't <laughs> any of that stuff. I mean, honestly, the best thing that you can say about him is that at the at the very end, he realized that he shouldn't have been trying to frame his brother. Yeah. And he expressed remorse over that. And I think he sort of expressed remorse over like Dragon Claw's Blix into it. That's the best thing that you can say about mm-hmm. him. Which, and to me, it's interesting that that's, that only took place right before he was going to die. You know what I mean? Like that's, oh, right. that's when the remorse comes out. Right. Right, 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 right at the end. And that, so again, we can, I guess we can get to this part where we're talking about it. So Harry (laughs) is found guilty and is, you know, sentenced to hang and everybody is like, like universal acclaim that, that this was the right verdict and that this is what he deserves. And so he, people have been hounding him for a a confession of some sort. Mm -hmm. And he allegedly recorded a confession while in jail whether or not that's an authentic recording of Harry or if it's Harry's words read by somebody else, we don't really know. But then he also dictated a, a long confession. He had this friend and also his cousin was there. His cousin, who he also wanted, plotted to kill. Exactly. As long as he was plotting <laughs> to kill people, he also considered <laughs> killing his cousin, his brother, yep. his girlfriend, all these people. And the confession is very interesting because it, he goes into the stuff with his brother, but he also recounts other murders that he was more directly involved in. So officially mm-hmm. he's a serial killer. I forget. You should, maybe you know this, you would be a good person to add the official definition sure. of it. It's, it's a uh, multiple. You have to kill at least more than two people, more than two people and spread out by geography or something. I forget what the, I think it's just more than two people. I think it has to be multiple it has instances. To be m- multiple instances of people greater than two. Right. So if he had just killed Kitty, quote unquote, he wouldn't be a serial killer. But because he admitted nope. to killing like three other people, right. now he becomes a right. serial killer. And that's so part of this. Uh, and it's very, the, the stories that he tells about these people that he killed, there was a girlfriend out in California. There was a guy in a gambling parlor and there's somebody else who he basically sort of robbed. He kind of tells all, and he had alluded to these other murders. He had, he had one of the reasons I kind of believe the confession is that he had kind of alluded to doing this stuff. He had told his brother and some other people that he had done these things. And then he just sort of, in, in the way that people sometimes do when they know that they're going to pass on is that, you know, he, he kind of let it all out and, you know, it issued this confession that I don't know, sort of satisfied people in some ways. Mm-hmm. In some ways, didn't kind of took some responsibility, but didn't take all of the responsibility. It was mm-hmm. not completely satisfactory, but he didn't say anything in the confession that would make you think that he wasn't a horrible person. Yeah, and a sociopath. So it's and for me, reading that and having that, it's one of the things I I really like when I'm writing is to just let people if you're writing about somebody letting them speak and having mm-hmm. them use that their words are, are going to yep. be more powerful than me describing stuff and so mm-hmm. 
I really, it, it was kind of a godsend to find that, to find that confession and to be able to use it. So yeah, it didn't like, I don't know if it clarified any mysteries or anything, but it was just another piece of the puzzle in this kind of coda at the end mm-hmm. to say, you know, here is what he said before he was hanged. Mm-hmm. And this is something that we kind of touched on kind of throughout, but, you know, we've kind of discussed how he very much exhibits a lot of the symptoms of being a sociopath. Other than that, do you, in your non-professional opinion, feel like he had any sort of medical mental disorder besides just being a sociopath? So that was, you know, people called him insane. Mm -hmm. And I don't, to the extent that I understand that, Medically and legally, I don't think that he was. I, I, mm-hmm. I think that to be insane, you have to kind of not know what you're doing and mm-hmm. to be in a kind of fully delusional state, not really understanding the difference between right and wrong and so forth. He knew exactly what he was doing. He was fully yep. just this calculating person. I think it's more interesting in some ways that he wasn't insane because then you just sort of get into this question, like how can a sane person plot Mm-hmm. these things and kind of revel in it afterwards. Mm-hmm. I think that that, so the term mad, madman is sometimes used with Harry and I don't think he was mad or insane. I think mm-hmm. he was, he was just, just the textbook sociopath mm-hmm. who really veered incredibly off course. Yeah. So as I mentioned before we started recording, now I have a couple of fun questions to ask you. See, this is, I was worried about this the whole time. I'm like, oh my gosh, what are these, what are these horrible, I have my writerly hat on now. Okay. But anyways, do what you must. So these are just, these are some little things you mentioned in the book that are kind of unique to the time in which the crime took place that I kind of wanted to, to get your take a little bit more on. Sure. So can you explain... If you kind of understand how it works, what the game of Pharaoh was to our listeners, because he tried to paint this this gambling game as I love how his his lawyer was trying to paint it as like uh, not as big of a deal as it actually was. It was it was gambling. So <laughs> I don't. So I'm not a gambler. And I, I will say this. Pharaoh at the time was the most popular game of chance that there was. So in the way that poker is today, probably, you know, Pharaoh was, it it was the thing that you did Mm -hmm. and it was relatively simple to play. And Harry like, wasn't that great at it. He was a gambler, (laughs) but periodically lost some money. I don't, I don't claim to really, and, and people still play Pharaoh. It's not, it's a, it's still a thing. I don't, quite know why pharaoh was supplanted by other games of chance i just know that harry was really into it and like everybody else was in the 1880s Hmm. i'll have to look into it more this was reading your book was the first time i'd ever heard of it and i was like what is this and i mean it's a card game right it's a card game right i actually do explain i i let's i will be perfectly honest with you i don't totally remember i know that i I, there's stuff about it (laughs) you like touched on it a little bit that it was like a card game it was really popular during the time it was like you said kind of a game of chance you were either good at it or you weren't good at good at it and he wasn't good at it (laughs) so and that's also one of those like when you write books you find yourself 
like pretending to know a lot about stuff that you don't necessarily know things about. And that was one I was like, I know this Pharaoh's card game, it's gambling, and then I'm not gonna I don't want to betray my ignorance too much by yep. by writing about. I'm sure someone listening to this podcast knows there might there probably is a Pharaoh podcast probably. out there. You know, where they're they're talking about Pharaoh topics with Pharaoh experts every week. I'm going to get comments, people being like, how dare you not know what Pharaoh is? How could you not know? What's how could anybody not? He calls himself a, a historian. He doesn't know Pharaoh. What sort of armchair historian do you think uh, you are? I know. <laughs> it's written about in the book. It's, it's, you know, it's not common knowledge, but it is documented knowledge that Harry was executed in the Hennepin County Jail. And I'm just curious, because of the rumors I've heard over the years, do you believe that because of the executions that took place there, that it's actually haunted? I do not believe in that, generally. That's fair. I think it's cool, though, that it's, I will say this, I think that there are things that exist that our rational understanding of the universe cannot explain. Mm Mm-hmm. So I'm a little bit agnostic about supernatural stuff because I, I think I know. I'm like, I'm a smart person. This can't be possible. <laughs> and yet there are just there's a lot of stuff out there that we can't we can't explain that way. And so mm-hmm. hauntings and stuff, I I could be proved wrong by that, but I'm not a I'm not a haunting person. That's fair. I would say. Officially, that's my official take. That's a hot take. But if I appreciate it, <laughs> but there were great haunting stories about Harry and these people. They went to this warehouse and they believed that the ghost of Harry like wrapped himself in this paper rather than a sheet. It was just, yeah, he's the kind of person like if you were alive at the time, you there there were you could have predicted the haunt the Harry Hayward haunting stories. Like he mm-hmm. would be the kind of person who haunts others. Yeah. Yeah, he he strikes me as a type of person who is so I need to be the center of attention that he would like stick around to make sure that people right, didn't even forget from, that he was around. Like well just, well just like a troubled soul, right? Like yeah. unable to find peace in the hereafter. Yeah. Just so mad he didn't get that insurance policy money. I know. I don't understand. <laughs> so that was the last of my like dealer's choice type questions. I just thought it would be gotcha. interesting to ask. As you mentioned at the beginning, I mean, this isn't your first book that you've published. Uh-huh. Are you working on anything else? Yeah. So I have a book coming out next spring. Actually, I really like this era now. I've decided that the 1880s are kind of my jam. Mm-hmm. And it's about a political scandal. Mm-hmm. It's the most famous political scandal you've never heard of. Awesome. Starroot scandal that involved cheating on postal contracts in the 1880s. This huge scandal in the 1880s that kind of came to a head when President Garfield was president, and then Garfield, unfortunately, was assassinated, Mm -hmm. and then Arthur became president. There were these two huge, basically kind of political corruption trials that happened in Washington, and it's a book about that, which goes back to my point about being the only game in town. Mm-hmm. I don't know why no one has ever, who would not want to read a book about postal 
contracting scandal. I mean, it just seems like it's like it's got bestseller and all over it, but a very like enjoyable that that Gilded Age political corruption stuff. I just love. So, yeah, it's a big legal history book about this political scandal. And there's the Garfield assassination actually kind of plays a part in this story as well, which is kind of interesting. So that's what I've been doing. And I'm like, really, we're getting down to the nitty gritty. The book's going to come out in April. So I've got to have some page proof soon and do all that fun stuff. Nice. Yeah. I don't think if it, it qualifies as old crime, I don't know if that would be. I mean, that would make the grade for your podcast. Cause I mean, it's like post, postage fraud, it's it's a crime. Well, it's, well, okay, so it's kickbacks, though, is the thing. It's you're I mean, a contractor, and I work for the post office, and you, I favor you, and then you give me money back. So it's I mean, it's still a crime. Oh, yeah, it's, it's totally. It's, pseudo, it's pseudo-embezzlement, kind of. Yeah. They called it, the legal term is peculation. That's a fun word. Peculation. It's like <laughs> the stealing of public funds. So... But it was like the, yeah, it was the political scandal of basically 1880 through about 1883. That was what everybody talked about. Crazy. Yeah. Well, is there anything else that I haven't already asked you that you'd like our listeners to know either about you or about your book, about Harry Hayward? Not really. I think that, I think it's just a, I think it's a, page turner not because i think i'm a good writer but just because i think it's an interesting story and it's i think that there's i love true crime and i've always Mm -hmm. i read uh in cold blood when i was in high school and then it was kind of off to the races so i i i'm a historian so i i try to keep my historian hat on while also wearing my kind of true crime page turner Mm -hmm. hat and i think it does that I know sometimes people hear like, oh my God, you're an historian. Oh, this book is going to be snooze. <laughs> and I don't think it's snooze. I think there's a, there's no. a lot of wild stuff that happens in it. So no, I, I, would, I would highly recommend And it's funny because the whole reason that I read your book is it was the book of the month in my book club. <gasps> your book club. And funnily enough, I had, when did this book come out? 2017, I think. Maybe. We'll say 2017. 2018. Sure. Sure. <laughs> do I remember when my own books come out? I do not. But I had bought a copy of it. And not just a copy, a signed copy of it <gasps> from... No, I'm going to blank on the name. My God, Lindsay, what is wrong with you? The bookstore in Cambridge. Uh, Scout Morgan. Scout Morgan. Thank you. Yeah. I had bought it there. And it's it's been sitting... Again, in my Goodreads to do to to be read list forever. I have that disease where you buy a bunch of books and then they sit on your shelf sure. for like five or six years before you get to them. And so when they brought it up, I was like, "Oh my god, I have a copy of this book. I'll read. I'll read my copy of it." And I'm reading through it, and I love how there's like photos and illustrations and like the oh, newspaper yeah. clippings and stuff in it. I love that stuff. That stuff uh-huh. is just like I could eat that all uh-huh. day. And I keep reading through it. And I was so excited to talk about it when we got back together. And I was like, oh, my God, what did you guys say of the book? No one else read it. And I was so angry. (laughs) (laughs) True In true book of fashion. Yeah. I was like, how Uh, dare you guys? I was so so offended. But it was so good. I I had a hard time putting it down. And it it was so interesting reading about. You know, and living in pseudo Minneapolis, I'm in one of the northern suburbs now. Uh-huh. 
but having lived in Minneapolis, being able to, you know, know exactly where those places are that you're talking Uh about is really cool. You know, being Uh able to kind of geolocate the different things and be like, oh, yeah, I didn't know that place used to be blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. So it was really cool. Yeah, there used to be a, we were talking about Ozark Flats, and I forget what's on the ground floor now, but there was a coffee shop in in there. It was a Espresso Royale. Oh, okay. And I remember going in there, and I'm like, oh, here I am hanging out, having a coffee, you know, in Ozark Flats. And that's <laughs> that's kind of nice. And also props to you for shopping your local independent bookstore, I think, for people so the book was published by University of Minnesota Press. Mm-hmm. You can buy it directly from them. I, I did a great event at Scout and Morgan, and that's where I signed it. And I think that's where I first heard about it, because I had planned to go to that, and then something happened and I wasn't able to go. And I think that was a little before Independent Bookstore Day, and that's when I got the copy of your book, because I went there during Independent Bookstore Day and got it. And so. I did some great events, uh, Magers and Quinn. Yep. In the cities, I did an event there, and they're just so nice and so. And I, I get it why people shop online at that large retailer that we mm-hmm. shall not name. Yeah. And I, I totally get it, convenience and price and all those things. But there's nothing like you know going into a bookstore, bookstore, and the experience that you have supporting them, having them be a part, and you know Scott Morgan's in that cool. Right. There's like a food co-op yep. thing right next to it. I was like, wow, this is great. Yeah, it's a cool space. So yeah, it's awesome. And they were they were super nice. Mm-hmm. They always are. And when I, I've done other events for other books at bigger bookstores and they've been nice too. So but that's great. I'm always a little crestfallen when people <laughs> this is a bad thing to admit, but people were like, Yeah, I got your book and I, I got it from the public library. And I'm like, Oh, that's good, but not as good as buying it would help me slightly more, but it's still very flattering. People make the effort and read it. So I'm, yep. I'm always, I'm always happy when people want to talk about it. So I'm glad you gave me the chance. Yeah. Thank you. I, yeah. Like I said, I very much enjoyed it. I thought it was a fascinating read. I'm glad that I picked it up and that book club reminded me that I had picked it up and it was on my list of ones to read. And actually now that we're talking about, Scout and Morgan, I think I have like five or six other books on my bookshelves that I bought from them that I still have yet to read, but I'm sure I'll get to them someday. I know, right. (laughs) I like supporting local independent bookstores whenever I can. Gotcha. Well, on that note, I would like to thank Sean for joining me today. It has, I wrote it in my notes, but I actually mean it. It was an absolute pleasure and honor to speak to you today. (laughs) It was really fun. And before we go, you kind of mentioned it already. Can you tell our listeners where they can? Find a copy of your book. You mentioned the University of Minnesota Press, and there's also a, a slew of independent bookstores in the Twin Cities that I'm sure you can also find a copy at. Yeah, I think if you just, I hate to tell people, I'll just Google and you can find it. But like, I would say you're if you're in the cities, you're more likely to just randomly go somewhere and find it. Mm-hmm. But ordering it through a local independent bookseller. Yeah, I think is the move for everybody. But if you, you know, if you need to find it some other way online, you know, online booksellers have it too. So it's, mm-hmm. I wouldn't say it's like everywhere books are sold because let's face it, it's not. <laughs> but if you hustle a little, it's out there. You can email me and I will drive to your home. <laughs> if you're Sign a, the copy in front of you. 
throw it at you. Uh, a four-hour <laughs> radius of Madison, Wisconsin. <laughs> I've got a bunch of them in my trunk, so I'll come on over. That's awesome. How many authors are, do you get that are going to like deliver the book to you in person? I mean, I'm, I'm only partially kidding. Like I've, <laughs> I've done. When you're not, you know, when you're not the biggest fish in the pond, you have to. You have to do things, but that's how the, the chicken soup for the soul guy. That's that's how he started. Was he literally sold those things out of the back of his car, out of the trunk of his car? That's what I'm shooting for. So you can be chicken soup for Harry Hayward for the soul. Harry There's going to be a. Soul. I'm going to have a franchise of Harry Hayward, a Harry Hayward cookbook. There you go. How there to cook go. the books. Yep. There you go. Mm-hmm. Again, thank you so much, Sean for being on the show. And on that note, I'm Lindsay, and I'll see you next time with another tale as old as crime. Looking for more content? You can find us online at yieldcrimepodcast.com. If you'd like to see pictures from this week's episode, not to mention bonus content and funny memes, make sure to follow us on Twitter at yieldcrimepod and on Facebook and Instagram at yieldcrimepodcast. On TikTok? Of course you are follow us at Yield Crime Podcast. If you want a playlist of all our episodes on YouTube, click the link in our show notes or in our link tree and subscribe today for not only a list of our full catalog, but a separate list as well, just of our Can You Crack the Cramp Word segments. If you're interested in ad-free content, consider supporting us with a one-time donation either over on Buy Me a Coffee or our Venmo page, both of which are in our link tree and in the show notes. If you'd like early ad-free content, not to mention some bonus material, become a member of our Patreon today for as low as a dollar a month. Got something you want to say? Shoot us an email over at yieldcrimepodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear your story ideas, see any gifts you send our way, or if you just want to say hello. We're pretty friendly. Speaking of friendly, if you'd like to have real-time conversations with us, consider joining our Discord over at the Cultivate Network. You can chat with us over at the Old Crimers Cubby or catch up with any of the other great creators that are part of the Cultivate family of podcasts. Just click the link in our show notes or over on our link tree to get started today.